Welcome to Papaya Talk, the podcast where we dive into the world of women's health from one generation to the next. Join us as a mother-daughter duo as we seek to empower young women through the sometimes awkward, often avoided conversation about our bodies. I'm Dr. Elisa Herrera-Set, physical therapist in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm Nadia Herrera-Set, public health student at Northeastern University in Boston. Together, we're going to share stories, insights, and expert advice about health, self-care, and everything in between. Hello, everybody. How are you all doing today? Good. Good. I know that Nadia just came back from a full day of work of her second day working at a community health center. You must, you, I know that you're a little bit tired. Yeah, I'm still getting used with the whole work schedule, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And um, we have Dr. Nicole Tyson with us today. And did you see patients today? No, today was just doing some teaching and some catching up on, like we were talking about before, uh, the post-holiday slew of emails and messages and We'll do that after the new year, and now it's the new year. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit <laughs> overwhelming. It's a little overwhelming. I have to remember next year to pre-anticipate how difficult this part of the year is so that I don't overschedule myself. Um, uh, Dr. Tyson, Nadia is working at a community health center in mm-hmm. Boston. Um, before you were a physician, did you do work like that as well, like work as like a um, front desk or an assistant or a scribe? Yeah, that's funny. I went to medical school in Boston, so I actually did a lot of fun community (laughs) things in Boston. Um, I think one of my favorite things I did was started a fun run for raising money for breast cancer um, in the Comet, in Boston Commons. Oh my goodness. So it was really fun. And yeah, it was, you know, we tried to optimize the climate, which is always a challenge because you don't know what you're going to get at what time of year. Yeah. Hot yeah. and humid, or you're going to have snow and rain. And uh, totally. that was some of our biggest challenges in coming from California. Yeah. I didn't even know what people were talking about <laughs> until I lived <laughs> there for a while. Then you know, right? It's cold. Yeah. yeah. And, Very and my cold. But yeah, I did. I, um, Gosh, it's like trying to think back of what I did. I worked mostly, I think, before I went to medical school, I was kind of a lab rat. I did a lot of lab work, and I really thought maybe I was going to do a PhD in research. Um, So then I realized how much I really like working with patients and teenagers and that maybe cutting up brains and taking pictures in the lab and looking (laughs) under microscopes wasn't my dream journey of life. (laughs) Well, let me introduce a little bit about you, uh, Dr. Tyson, so that our listeners know who they are um, listening to. This is Dr. Nicole Tyson, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Stanford University School of Medicine. She specializes in pediatric and adolescent gynecology. And for over 20 years, Dr. Tyson has partnered with girls and their families as they journey from childhood through adolescence and, and into adulthood. And she enjoys solving complex problems as well as common concerns that can be overlooked and challenging to girls and young women. She's been recognized locally, nationally, and internationally as a leader in the field and as an experienced surgeon. She's consulted as an adolescent gynecology expert for online articles in magazines like Seventeen and Self and New York Times. 
and she is the Chief of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology at Stanford Children's Hospital and the Director of Mentorship and Coaching for the OB-GYN department. She is currently working as a chief editor for two pediatric adolescent gynecology books, both due for publication this year. Congratulations on that. It's not wow. easy to write a book. You got two coming in. I would say it's uh, it's it's different being an editor too. So it's it's a it's a big project, but also really cool project to have these uh, projects in the in the spaces in which I work. It's really fun. I can imagine. Well, thank you so much again for coming and talking on our podcast today. I, my first question is just regarding my own, you know, not, not having knowledge on pediatric and adolescent gynecology. So I wanted to ask can, if you could tell us a little bit about how you decided to become a medical doctor that specializes in this area. That is a great question. And I will tell you if you're Nadia, thinking about this journey of medicine, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of um, twists and turns in the journey. Yeah. And so sometimes we go in with one thing and we come out with a completely different spin. Um, totally. I watched that in my own daughter who's graduating medical school herself this year. And that was certainly oh, my wow. experience. Um, I always thought I was going to be a pediatrician, to be honest. So I, I kind of studied um, psychology and biology. And like mm -hmm. I had mentioned, I sort of did a lot of lab work and some volunteer work, but honestly worked sort of as a nanny through college. So I felt like I had a lot of, you know, kid exposure yeah. and kid time. And then um, went to medical school, sort of pursuing that. And for, you know, various reasons, we kind of get influenced about what we want to be when we grow up by the people that we work with and maybe the people that we take care of. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing a lot of uh, pediatrics and sort of high intensity spaces like the ICU and the emergency room. Wow. And then on this very chronic yucky illness ward. Mm -hmm. um, I say yucky because it was just really sad. So I saw a lot of loss and grief and tragedy and I was pretty miserable. And I just thought this yeah. is not what I thought, you know, being a pediatrician mm -hmm. would look like. And for many people, it's not. It just was my experience on those rotations. So then I um, kind of reached out to other places to work. And there was this really cool collaborative team um, of different specialists. So like reproductive endocrinologists and infertility, they were OBGYNs mm -hmm. um, and then other OBGYNs and uh, this doctor who was an adolescent specialist. And it was basically this amazing collaboration of doctors seeing really cool teenagers with all these different problems and interesting things going on. And mm -hmm. so I just loved like they didn't wear a lab coat and how they talked to their patients and they sat down mm -hmm. and had really quick, you know, diving into the juicy stuff of life relationships. Mm -hmm. And it was incredibly refreshing. And I sort of had that aha, like this is, this is where I belong. Like this is mm -hmm. a space I love. Um, and so it, it combined that idea of getting to do surgery and getting to the, the OB part, which I loved and taking care of women and children. And then just having some really great interactions with adolescents, which I absolutely loved. And it was the best pivot I made. So I'm sort of thankful to those horrible rotations that I thought I didn't even know if I want to be a doctor anymore um, to, to be able to find something that I truly love. And I still do this many years later. Yeah, that's, I feel like it's refreshing for, you know, people like me who are still in college and thinking about medical school or even in medical school, because you always, I feel like I get a little bit scared sometimes that, um, you know, the thing that I'm going to set out to do in medical school or the, and my end goal is going to change, but you know, those things will happen for, 
They definitely will. And they probably will in your career too. You know, we have long careers and there are lots of different possibilities in those careers too, which yeah. is kind of fun to think about. Yeah. So you don't want to get too wedded to something, but then you also, you know, want to love what you do and, and be able to stick mm -hmm. in that space for as long as you can. Yeah, there is a lot to learn about when you have a bad experience. I went into physical therapy school assuming I was going to do outpatient orthopedics. And then I was in a lecture for um, pediatrics, and I saw that the pediatric clinics looked a lot like a gymnastics gym. And I am, um, I was a gymnast. I was like, oh, I could, I would feel, feel really comfortable in that atmosphere. So I went, and then the one of my um, clinical affiliations was at a clinic where it just happened to be a somewhat toxic environment. And they just, the women that were working with each other were all talking badly about each other to me. And I was, and mm -hmm. I just, it had nothing to do with the work itself. Just like it just put a bad taste in my mouth. And then, so in the end, I didn't, I didn't end up pursuing that kind of work, but I worked outpatient ortho and realized how much I liked working with teenagers, specifically who are gymnasts and dancers. And so then I started my practice that was working with kids, but not in a developmental way. And like, well, yes, in a developmental way, but not in like not with children that necessarily have gross motor delay, but um, sports um, injuries in young people. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then I work in with the kids with gross motor delay in a more recreational way, like, you know, teaching a, a fun gymnastics class. And I feel like that's a nice balance. But I I don't know. Um, I, I feel like kind of grateful that I got exposed to a bad experience because it led me to a place that I really like being in right now. So um, yeah. yeah, stuff to learn from the good stuff and bad stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, I was wondering, um, you know, when, when I was talking with some friends about um, who we were going to have on the podcast today, they were surprised that there was such a thing as a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist. And so um, if you could just share with us, what are some of the top reasons families seek your care? Yeah. And I know, I mean, it's a funny thing because we've actually been around for a really long time now. There's actually, um, I mean, 19 to 20, depending which year, fellowships that um, work in this space. So it's where OBGYNs who then do um, specialty care for taking care of kids and teenagers and young adults. Mm -hmm. um, for all sorts of things. So some of the common things we see are um, like young children who maybe have vulva or, or vaginal concerns, or we see a lot of girls with bleeding and period problems. So from heavy periods, irregular periods, painful periods, mm -hmm. um, we do a lot of um, kind of basic adolescent, you know, counseling in those spaces and optimizing um, birth control for certain patients and teens. So we do a lot of bread and butter teen stuff, some like from acne to contraception to patients who maybe have medical illnesses that are sort of outside of the realm um, of an OBGYN or a pediatrician. And then we do a lot of very cool surgical things which involve how girls and people that develop a little differently embryologically. So they may have variations in their uteruses. Um, so sometimes blood doesn't come out in the way that it should. And we see a lot of masses, so ovarian masses or pelvic masses. Um, sometimes ovaries will twist. So we have these fun little emergencies a lot. Um, injury, like another one is we see a lot of girls who kind of injure down there. We call them straddle injuries. As a gymnast, 
that's not a <laughs> common thing. So sadly, we take care of those kind of emergencies too. And I think we kind of overlap in a lot of specialties in OBGYN. So we, you know, we take care of girls who are pregnant. Um, sometimes we have, we don't have that opportunity as much where I work now, but that was always my practice prior to coming to Stanford. Um, we do a lot of complex family planning. So contraception, sort of thinking about family building. And, um, and then we overlap a lot with pediatrics. So we take care of girls, you know, who's maybe that aren't having their periods or having puberty problems. Um, we do a ton of things with gender care. So taking care of kids with, you know, managing their, their identity with sexually and, and with their gender. Um, we do a lot of, I don't know if you've heard of polycystic ovarian syndrome. So that's another space with a lot of times comes to us with the regular period part. And um, yeah, I mean, the fun part is we collaborate with a lot of different specialties and a lot of different people mm-hmm. um, to take care of kind of problems. And, you know, so we even see kids who have maybe anatomic problems before they're even born. So they see these on ultrasound now. And then we're like, oh, well, this is a different uterus. And we try to manage things before problems ensue. And then we take care of girls like, well, into their 20s. I even have a young 30-year-old um, with developmental delay. And so we kind of try to optimize um, you know, their medical condition in the framework of sort of where they are emotionally and mentally and do a little bit of TLC that maybe an adult gynecology practice is not as familiar or equipped to do. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I get, there's some really fun spaces. Like I got to work last year with this very cool engineer who developed a tampon inserter for girls who have disabilities. Oh, so, wow. I mean, it's just like this very cool space that really looks at girls in all their different spaces. And it's very fun. It's great. And, and we develop these beautiful, fun, great relationships with patients and their families that, I mean, it's kind of unbeatable, I'll tell you. Yeah. That's, That's really nice to hear. Yeah. I just imagine, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about um, a young girl going to a gynecologist for the first time and wondering how do you help them feel comfortable? Um, but just by the way that you speak about it, it sounds like y- you really enjoy it. It must... Um, your positive energy must emanate out to them and make them feel comfortable. Uh, it's very circular. I'll tell you, I think, you know, there's, I think that's, there can be high anxiety, right. Coming to a gynecologist, even, you know, I don't, I didn't want to go to the dentist today. I had a dentist appointment. I'm like, well, <laughs> like I don't want to go sit in that chair and be scraped and I'm uncomfortable and I have 30 things to do and it hurts sometimes. Yeah. Right. So that's like that energy you bring with you to the doctor. And, and so, you know, going to the gynecologist is the last thing you want is to dread that, and people, you know, have histories, they have traumas, they have experiences, they've heard these horror stories. It's like having a baby. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to share their horror, horror story with other moms. It's like such a bad policy. So, you know, we have work to do to kind of do what's normal and healthy and happy and not make it a dread. And mm-hmm. so it's a, a lot of my moms will take their kids out to go get boba after the gynecology visit. So it's good to be <laughs> in a good boba. <laughs> They're like, we're going to do that today. (laughs) (laughs) So you said a little bit that you work with some um, patients that have problems with their period and stuff. And this question is inspired by a conversation that I had with my mom on our podcast in September. And I started my period when I was 11. And even though I've had it, you know, for the past nine years, I'm still pretty unfamiliar with, you know, just the basics of a period, like the stages and all of that. And I was wondering if you could give us 
you know, those basics of the menstrual cycle and how different stages relate to an increased or decreased likelihood of um, unprotected male-female penetrative intercourse of getting pregnant. Yeah, I mean, so I think part of it is you're speaking to, you know, early on when we have our menstrual cycles, we see a lot of irregularity and variability. Mm -hmm. But usually, like after a couple of years, we start to see those cycles kind of come come out, you know, coming more regularly, like more like every month. And so when we we don't expect periods to be outside of like every three months, even when you first start periods. So there are some guidelines and parameters we use to talk to people about expectations. Okay. You know, we don't we don't like to see people use, you know, more than eight tampons or pads in a day or soaking through their clothes or missing mm-hmm. school and activities because of pain or bleeding um, or seeing things like anemia. So I think the tendency um, in, in America for sure is to put up with it. Like, well, this mm-hmm. is something we have to deal with and my mom dealt with it and it's not that bad. Yeah. And so my experience and what the studies tell us is that we underestimate the impact of our menstrual cycles on our lives and the detrimental impact. Mm-hmm. So actually diving into someone's like menstrual history um, really helps us understand what their experience is like and what we can do to either educate or help optimize or assure, you know reaffirm. And a lot of times we diagnose things much earlier than they normally are. So we diagnose things like bleeding disorders, which are really, really common, but mm-hmm. often aren't diagnosed. And that can be problematic for later life from car accidents to childbirth to acute events. So it's good to know what's going on early. And same thing goes like with endometriosis, you know, the average delay in diagnosis is about 10 years. That's a lot of misery and agony and sadness. And so we like to have those conversations early and find out where people fall into what it looks like for their periods. And then just sometimes simply educating about it's a good idea to track your periods. Mm-hmm. You know, because then we know, is this a pattern? Is this new? What does it look like? So just a lot of times we don't really pay attention to those details, but it is good to pay attention because if something's changing or becomes abnormal, then we have sort of a track. Mm-hmm. And so getting to understand your body is probably the most important thing. So that is why, you know, our national organizations advise having a visit with a pediatric and adolescent gynecologist or an OBGYN. Um, or at least a trusted pediatrician between 13 and 15, age 13 and 50, to talk about a lot of those things. I think it's important to mention here, too, that I think the first time you see an OBGYN as a young woman, you might not necessarily have an internal exam. Like, you won't necessarily have... You don't have an internal exam. Yeah, we don't really... There's no internal exams um, because you don't need a pap smear now until you're 21, and probably, you know, some cases later. And I think for many people, we're going to be able to just do your own pap smear, like self-collect and a kind of that big speculum clamp issue is going to be kind of an olden days thing. Oh, wow. And, and we're going to see big impacts of this HPV vaccine that everybody got when they were young. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll be like Australia and get rid of cervical cancer altogether. So, you know, they've been doing HPV vaccines mandated for school for a long time, 12 years now, I think. And they, they're just not seeing cervical cancer or cervical dysplasia anymore. Oh, my goodness. So it's, you know, it's a humongous asset to women. Um, but we're not there yet. We haven't got mm. like the, 
boys and girls vaccinated enough to see us not need pap smears. Um, but I think that the time will catch up with us. So I think our future looks bright for that. Can you explain about, a little um, bit? Oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> were you going to continue with that question, Nadia? About yeah, I was the... just going to ask if she could explain a little bit about the uh, self. Um, the self-pap? Yeah, the self-pap. Yeah. <laughs> so the self-pap is really just using a Q-tip to collect um, the cells that we sent. But when we do a pap smear, we are looking at the cervix and we collect cells from inside the cervix. Mm-hmm. But now there's pretty sensitive testing that you can do that from your vagina. Oh, wow. So sort of like chlamydia testing, you know, it used to be you had to go up in there to the cervix and hold a swab for 60 seconds. And even when I was a medical student, we used to have to, sorry, listeners, stick a swab <laughs> into a guy's penis for chlamydia screening. It was wow. devastating, like the poor guys. So then came urine collection, which is obviously mm-hmm. not a lot less torturous. And you can now do self-swabbing. You know, there's kits in the grocery store for your own screening of chlamydia. So that's kind of like, this is something that should have been done 15 years ago. But with women's health, things come really slowly and funding isn't rich. Um, But I think that's going to be what the future looks like. And there's already many, many programs and um, protocols being developed for that space, which I think is a really wonderful thing. It's not so great, maybe the business plan of OBGYNs, but it's great for women's lives. That's very cool. I, I wanted to learn more because one of our um, old podcast episodes, too, maybe the same one I was talking about before, we talked a little bit about a pap smear and just like, you know, the anxiety that comes with that and, you know, just uh, the unfamiliarity with it and how people, you know, don't want to go in just because they fear getting that pap smear. Um, although it is very important, but yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. And then what about um, the cycle and when you're likely to get pregnant? Um, oh yeah. Our converse- yeah. Our conversation was a little bit about how the college students manage um, uh, preventing pregnancy. And we talked about how, some um, in some situations, Nadia has heard people not uh, the men not wanting to use um, a condom. Ugh, I know these boys. Yeah. Well, I say no condom. <laughs> that. That's my motto. Yeah. But you know, they have to be responsible too. Um, I mean, in all honesty, you know, we really can get pregnant almost at, at all the different times because things happen. I mean, we're sort of designed to make babies. I think when you think about this sort of natural family planning where you have a very reliable menstrual cycle. So Mm -hmm. we know this a lot from fertility practices, right? So day one of your period um, would be, you know, your day one of your cycle. And most of us ovulate on day 14, so Mm -hmm. two weeks in. But now you can really ovulate between day 11 and day 17. So fertility docs are like, have a lot of sex around those days. Mm And then the idea is, you know, then you would ovulate, get pregnant with their sperm around and then be pregnant in that next two weeks. And -hmm. if you don't, then your hormones now drop and progesterone goes up and you have your period. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will do these sort of, they'll measure their ovulation at day 14, or they will really have very regular cycles and sort of calculate when not to have sex in their menstrual cycle. The problem is that young people don't have that reliable menstrual cycles or are not necessarily tracking as well. The younger we are, the more fertile we tend to be in most cases. 
Um, so a lot of times those those methods aren't really advocated for adolescents for those reasons. Um, I think it's really hard to count on that. The other thing is that they certainly don't help protect against chlamydia, which is the really the most common STD in young women under 25. Um, in some populations, it's as high as one in seven. Now, we've seen some chlamydia, you know, getting better and going down because I think people are using condoms um, and maybe mm-hmm. starting sex a little later. But chlamydia is one of those bummer infections. I say bummer because 75% of the time you don't even know you have it and it's working away in there to cause problems with your fallopian tubes. And that can cause problems getting pregnant later or put you at increased risk for an ectopic pregnancy. So if anyone who's sexually active under 25, we just do chlamydia testing every year just to check in or whenever someone wants, Mm -hmm. you know, changing partners. But it's not like oh, you're a horrible person and you're dirty because you have chlamydia. It means you're under 25 and 25-year-olds and under 10 to have yeah. sex with each other. And a lot of girls just don't get symptoms from it, which is mm-hmm. which is a bothersome issue. Now, you can have symptoms. You can have some pain and bleeding and burning. Um, but, uh, you know, most of the people don't. So the earlier you treat it, the better. The fewer infections you get, the better. And condoms prevent it. Mm-hmm. So, And a lot of people think you can't get an infection or you can't get pregnant the first time. Right. It makes no sense because, of course, right. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many girls um, have been pregnant the first time they have sex or get things mm-hmm. like herpes, right? Like that is the unfortunate infection that keeps giving. So right. you have sex one time with one guy and now you get herpes, but you get these outbreaks forever and they're very painful. And so condoms are sort of, you know, the essential thing that both of you guys have to be committed to. Right. And, and sort of develop, I think one of the things that I've worked with a lot of teens to help evolve is like developing the language to use a condom, which mm-hmm. is, you know, but I don't want to use a, he doesn't want to use a condom. He says to you, because it's not as sensitive. I don't feel it as well. You know, I'd rather not. And then you'd have this conversation, whether you're on birth control or not that, well, I'm not really ready to start a family and yeah. I want to keep my one body I have for my whole life safe. Right. And so I want to use a condom. And if you don't, then you don't do that. Right. There's a lot of other ways to have fun and have pleasure. But in terms of like penis and vagina sex, insertional, whatever we want to call it, Mm -hmm. you know, then the condom has to be agreed upon. And that has to be part of the conversation. Sex is something mature people do. And so if that mature conversation can't happen, then it might be not worth doing it. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is where it's tricky. But what but girls should always have that voice. And be able to say that and feel good and strong about that. And it's hard. I think it's a really awkward conversation. And most of the time we know that girls want to please the boys and they feel like, I know he really wants to. Mm -hmm. And so there's that pressure feeling. Well, it's a good filter. Can I, am I mature enough to have the conversation? Is he mature enough to have the conversation with me? If the answer is no, then that's probably a good filter out. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, you know, it's easy to say now, but you're not in the heat of the moment Mm -hmm. and you really like him and it does feel really good. And so there's a lot of compromising and negotiating on the fly and that makes it harder. So it's a little bit more wise if it's, if you're able to have a plan ahead of time, takes a little spontaneity out of it, but um, it takes all that kind of other risk. And then the the aftermath, you always think about, you know, how I'm going to feel afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that's another kind of way to think about it. And you want to feel good and safe and happy and proud um, versus anxious and nervous. And, oh, my God, the pregnancy test and the morning after pill. And, oh, now I got to go right. to screen and all that stuff. Right. Like it's just right. there's a lot there's a lot that goes into it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. And even harder when there's some intoxication involved. Well, that is also true. And so, you know, college is a big place for risks. Mm -hmm. So one of my like college spiels has long been, you know, we, it's not realistic to say, don't do anything. Like don't take any risks. Cause that's just, right. I mean, I, you know, I have to walk the walk too. Like I went to college, mm -hmm. but I think it's not good to take more than one risk at a time. So I think if like sex is on the table, then being sober, is super important. Yeah. And if you're going to be out drinking and doing fun stuff, then maybe take sex off that table and mm. make sure if you're at a place where you are, you know, perhaps vulnerable as many girls are, is you're with somebody who's not drinking too. So you got to look out. You yeah. have a person who's your person and she's like your designated driver, your designated guide, gets you guys out of there right. and keeps you all safe. And so that's a great way for women to look out for women mm -hmm. and even men to look out for women. So I think there's a lot of programs now that are being developed that it's not just women looking out for women. Yeah. Guys need to speak up, right? That sort of airplane, see something, say something. Guys have to totally. do that too. Mm -hmm. And I think it's hard. I think guys have been feeling that for a really long time. When you talk to teenage boys and fraternity boys, they struggle, right? Because they also want to fit in. Right. Um, but now I think there's starting to be a lot more of those conversations and empowerment. Like right when you went yes. to college, you had to watch all those videos right. just around the corner. And like, I mean, it's almost yes. becomes like death <laughs> to it. But yeah. I also think at least it opens up these conversations. So it's not brand new and super awkward. I totally agree. I really like that one risk at a time. That's a good way to remember things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, I think you have one more question. Yeah. Right, Nadia? Oh, yeah. Uh, this is another just basic question. I feel like I've had a lot of conversations about it with, um, you know, peers and my, my girlfriends. But I was wondering if you could give us any tips on gentle hygiene. I feel like girls don't know a lot on like the do's and don'ts. And I, I was also wondering if people come to you about concerns with the smell or the amount of discharge things like the look of their genital area, things like that. My goodness, all the time. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge um, place of interest right now for a lot of people, young and old. Mm -hmm. And I think there's sort of different age groups. I mean, I think overall through all ages, it's best to not use soaps and washes and douches down there. So that whole drugstore section of feminine mm -hmm. hygiene project product, feminine hygiene products is kind of, a giant fraud to make women focus on how it smells and how it looks and how it should be treated, right. but literally causes harm. So, you know, the vagina and the vulva are really sort of self cared. They need water and that's it. Um, in fact, even shaving is really a disadvantage. You know, some people, you know, have a lot of hair and it comes out of bathing suits or things like that. So mm -hmm. trimming your hair is probably better, but the hair is kind of like eyelashes, you know, it keeps that area protected and it keeps the nice micro environment. But, you know, doing a lot of bath bombs and douches and washes and soaps mm -hmm. and rinses and hygiene, and it actually ends up sort of messing up that ecosystem. And so you're yeah. more likely to have symptoms and problems. And I think all women have vaginal odor. That is like our bodies. We all have body right. odor. Um, we all have vaginal odor, and that's just part of us. And a lot of times girls um, will come to us because moms feel like it smells different or boyfriends or girlfriends say things, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that's an infection or that's a problem or that's true. Um, and again, like daughters have different gene pools than mothers. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So our labias and our vulvas and our, our smells look and are different. And that's very healthy and normal. Mm-hmm. And I think, unfortunately, there's very, very detrimental images on the internet about what a vulva is supposed to look like. It's sort of like for me, in my generation, it was like every model was a size zero, zero. Mm-hmm. And that was super problematic, right? I mean, that was sort of the spark of eating right. disorders is what is this supposed to look like? And I think right. having a pre-pubertal vulva with no hair, no labia discoloration, no redundant skin, is just not how labias and vulvas look. Right. And so that has become a really nice area to talk to women about what their body should look like mm-hmm. and give that kind of body confidence and affirmation yeah. um, because we all look different and we're all built different and we're all lopsided in some ways. And, right. um, you know, enjoying and being happy and proud of your body is sort of an, incest- an essential part of development and future, yeah. you know, happy and joy with sexuality. If you're always feeling like you're less than, um, that's not a great way to live your best life. And I think, a lot of that vulvar and labia, I don't know, interest and in, in neuroses mm-hmm. in some cases is really problematic. Yeah, I definitely, not only in drugstores, it's all over social media too, you know. I mean, there are definitely that those body body confidence affirmation type type things, but also a lot of people trying to sell products that like, oh, if you take this, then it, it'll smell Mm-hmm. No, normal, quote unquote, <laughs> normal, whatever that means. It's um, crazy. I feel like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean, I think we even see things with like these paid people who are into, um, uh, like I don't know where, what you call it, like the Gwyneth Paltrow, the wellness phenomenon, mm-hmm. or whatever, right, where right. you're putting jade eggs and you're steaming your vagina, and you're right. like, that is insanity. Like yeah. jade <laughs> eggs don't belong in your vagina. Your vagina should not be steamed. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think so. Uh, there's a lot of like famous people who become um, experts in something they're not and, and, and inadvertently right. cause a lot of harm. Yeah. You know, I've taken things out of vaginas that don't belong in there. And I've seen really injured vaginas because they're doing some therapeutic modality that they heard about on Vogue or something. It's just um, wow. <laughs> really sad. Yeah. So I think some of it's medical literacy, too. Yeah. It's like maybe we just don't talk to each other about vagina and and vulvar health and what that yeah. looks like. So I I'm a big fan of bidets. Now that you know we had that big toilet paper shortage and then Costco <laughs> started stocking up bidets and um, you know rinsing with water. I think you know stool is nearby and that's never a great thing to have um, in your vagina or near your vagina. And young people right. things are always really close together and everybody's not perfect. So rinsing with water is a really great thing. And Mm -hmm. so I think for people who struggle with vulvovaginal concerns, either a bidet is wonderful or just rinsing with an arrowhead squirt bottle with water Mm -hmm. and really just letting your vulvovaginal area do its job and maintain its own homeostasis and balance and just just be having water on it Mm -hmm. and be proud of your body. Yes. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Nadia and I are, are Filipino American, and in Philippine culture, we have something called a tabo, and it's basically <laughs> like a plastic cup that h- hangs out next to the toilet, gets filled with water, and then it gets just poured on the area. Exactly, the friend <laughs> of the days. I mean, I think most you know most people have some concepts of right you know, how to do it in different ways, and I think sometimes um, more is not better. Mm-hmm. So. 
That's a good Dr. question. Dr. Tyson, can I ask you one more question? Do you have time for one more question? Okay. Um, this is a conversation that Nadia and I have had a few times over the past few years, mm -hmm. and it was it's the use of birth control pills for you for purposes other than preventing pregnancy. And I feel like Nadia's generation of young women, um, a lot of them would take birth control pills. It just became a standard thing, kind of like you come of a certain age and you're going to start taking birth controls. Why? Because maybe to manage um, premenstrual um, syndrome uh, symptoms, maybe to manage skin, maybe all kinds of different things. Nadia could probably speak to that more. But mm -hmm. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the use of birth control pills for purposes other than preventing pregnancy. I'm a huge fan. Um, I mean, I just think there's so many benefits. So not just pills, you know, there's pills, patches, shots, rings, implants, IUDs. Um, they dramatically improve people's quality of life. And, um, you know, like you said, they prevent breast cysts, they prevent PMS, they prevent mm -hmm. dysmenorrhea, missing school, reengaging in class. And, you know, there's a lot of really great studies that starting birth control young may lead to you living a little bit longer because it reduces so many future cancers. You know, we have very strong data that it reduces ovarian cancer, um, colon cancer, uterine cancer. Some, the Paragard IUD reduces cervical cancer. Some are showing maybe like even pancreas cancer and thyroid cancer. So the wow. idea is it's kind of putting these reproductive cells to rest a bit, right? Mm -hmm. um, and even the IUD itself has been shown to reverse early stage uterine cancer. Um, wow. So I think there's just so many health benefits with very few risks in young people. Mm -hmm. And so I think because of, you know, the quality of life enhancement, it's a big deal. And I mean, I, my own daughters started birth control really young and early because they had periods and didn't like them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's just the, the downside to doing that is that you have to be compliant. Right. So that's why thinking about things that don't require such maintenance are right. helpful. Because if you're just taking it here and there, or you forget, or you're off and on, then that can cause some problems for people. So right. there's just a lot of bad energy and myths about birth control mm -hmm. that we've been using and studying now for over 60 years that just haven't gone away. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so people people hang on to those. And, and like, like labor, everybody has their own horror story, right? And mm -hmm. they've got to share it. And right. so <laughs> that's not really yeah. studying the thousands of women comparing to not using birth control, but that's... We right. call those anecdotal stories, but they kind of terrorize people. And, yeah. you know, it's a disservice because then a lot of people don't get that advantage and opportunity. Mm -hmm. I feel like you've said so many things that are important for our audience to hear. Yeah. And um, I don't know if there's any other like PSA, any other public service <laughs> announcement that you'd like to make, um, because there was so much important stuff that you shared. But um if there's anything else that you would like to share with our audience of young women, that would be um, now would be the time. Or if you just want to let the audience know how to get a hold of you and your services, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say don't believe everything you hear and read. Um, you know, I don't think TikTok and Instagram and mm -hmm. the media are great sources of empowering young women. Right. And in fact, I think a lot of things that would draw a lot of media attention and get a lot of advertisers are fear based things. So I would say, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't rely on that. You know, if there's something that you're contemplating, it's probably better to talk. It is better to talk to your doctor or talk to a parent or a trusted adult. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that's a real big problem is there's just so much fear-based mythical stigma, 
yuckiness out there. That's really detrimental. It makes me sad because I see it and hear about it. You know, my patients teach me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that I think is really important. And then I think one of the things I love about doing what I do is I work and talk with a lot of teenagers who then can go out and talk to their friends and families and like this sort of spread mm. um, like wildfire of good information. So I, mm-hmm. I really like that. So when you learn something good, you know, share that. Because that's truly promoting medical literacy, and it helps you know women from afar. Um, so that I would I would say that would be one great thing is learn the good stuff and be cautious of some of the stuff that you're reading and hearing. And yeah. um, and then, and then and in then terms we're... of reaching me, mm-hmm. um, I'm at Stanford at uh, Stanford Children's Hospital, and so you can just Google me, and that's like <laughs> referral lines and telephone numbers and all that good stuff is there. Um, can I plug one Instagram account? That's really good. Yes, yes please. My, um, <laughs> my, my Stanford medical students are really passionate about this misinformation. So they started a very cool Instagram account called Gyn Guide. It's G-Y-N dot G-U-I-D-E. It's two purple G's. Mm-hmm. And so it's a great account, really written for teenage language, but lots of my adult colleagues use it too. Um, just talking about a lot of things that we talked about today a great resource for birth control information. Um, And so I think that's a really great site to check out. And there are a lot of really fun websites out there like bedsider.org, youngwomenshealth.org. And there's a really fun one called The Pleasure Project, which I'm enjoying because it's it's like focusing on sexual health in a positive way, not Mm -hmm. like, oh, you're going to get chlamydia. Oh, you're going to get like, instead of this constant framing of the dangers, Mm It talks about sex, which is fun and good and healthy and happy. And how do we help people engage in that space to have a better long-term sex life? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some really great websites out there. That I just love to name it. a few. Thank you for sharing those. We'll make sure to um, ref- like like uh, tag them or um, include them on our show notes so that people can find them um, so they don't have yeah. to rewind and, and listen again. But <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Um, anything else, Nadia? No, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on today. I feel like I learned a lot and I feel like this is a great conversation that needs to be had. And I feel like everyone can learn a lot from listening to um, our conversation today. Oh, well, good. Well, let me know, not if you want to come um, do some job shadowing with me and see if pediatric adolescent gynecology is in your future too. Yeah. <laughs> Your mom has a special <laughs> Okay, that sounds good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. If you're hearing this message, you've listened to the entire episode. And for that, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Be sure to subscribe and stay tuned for more discussions about health, self-care, and embracing the power of being women. Until next time.